So, David, just preach a sermon about David, this guy. <laughs> um, so, he's me. Oh my gosh, this is very loud. Does someone want to turn me down a bit or? That's not too bad? Okay, that's all right. Um, okay, so David mentioned over a thousand times in the Bible. He's got over 60 chapters written about him. He wrote 73 or 75, I've got to update my stats, apparently 75 of the Psalms, and he has more written about him than any other character in the Bible aside from Jesus. So trying to distill this guy down into 30 or 40 minutes is uh, found pretty tricky, pretty tricky. Um, so just a tiny bit of a roadmap for what I want to do today. Um, the as uh, Rick mentioned at the very start, a lot of the Psalms are written by David, which is really cool because we have this really great historical um, account of what was happening in David's life. But alongside that, parallels to that, we have this really rich uh, kind of like emotional journey that we can read into as well of David. So we can kind of see what was happening in the historical side, but we can actually see how he was feeling in those moments, which is something I think is actually fairly unique um, about David. Um, so we're going to do a fair bit of reading today. I'm going to smash through this. It's going to be great. We're going to be hanging out in 1 Samuel, and we're going to start in chapter 16. Um, and I thought we could just meet David to begin with. We'll see how, how we meet David. So uh, the Lord's... Okay, so um, the Lord has pretty much ripped the kingdom away from Saul. We learned about Saul. Um, ben spoke about Saul, I think, two weeks ago, and he's turned into a bit of a crazy nutter. So God is going to rip the kingdom away from Saul and give it to someone who Samuel is about to anoint. We'll see who that is. No spoilers. Um, the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about this, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I'll show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one that I indicate. So Samuel uh, did what the Lord said. And when he arrived in Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? A um, little kind of side note about this trembling. In Deuteronomy, um, the, uh, it speaks about what is to happen if an unsolved murder happens in your town. If an unsolved murder happens in your town, the elders of the town are supposed to call on a Levite to come and sacrifice a heifer as atonement for this unsolved murder. So here Samuel comes, this Le uh, Levite and this judge with a heifer to this little town and all the town elders are like, oh my gosh, who has died? <laughs> who has been murdered? So these, these elders are trembling. Just a fun little piece of trivia for you to keep you guys awake. <laughs> Um, so, these, uh, so the elders of the town trembled when they met him. And they asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and he invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab. Now this is Jesse's first son. And Samuel thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Jesse brings all of his sons in front of uh, Samuel, uh, and God rejects all of them. And Samuel's a little bit confused because he was told to go and anoint one of Jesse's sons to be the new king of Israel. And we continue reading verse 11. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. 
Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So this youngest son, the Hebrew word for youngest here is Qatar, which also means small. So not only is he young, he is quite small. Um, and that's in contrast to when Samuel saw Eliab, the, first, the, the firstborn son of Jesse. He said, oh, look at this. He's this tall guy. He's awesome. This must be the one that God wants. And God's like, nope, not looking at that kind of stuff. We're looking for the heart. Um, so he sent for him and he brought, in, uh, and he brought him in. And he was uh, glowing with health and had fine appearance and handsome features. This is David. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went on to Ramah. So most commenters believe that Samuel, uh, I'm sorry, that uh, David is between 10, 15 years old right now, probably, probably closer to 15, 10 is like the youngest. Um, but this is like, who's, who's, has anyone here got a kid that's 10 years old, 10, 15 years old? Anyone in that age range? How old's Taylor? Is Taylor? Taylor. So this is, so we're talking someone like Taylor's age, right? Um, and so this, you know, really well-known Levitical priest judge guy, Samuel, comes and he's like, you're going to be the next king of Israel. It's very, very strange, very, very weird. And the circumstance surrounding it, like all these elder, town elders think that he's come to, like, sacrifice because there could have been a murder or something. Um... So what stood out to me as I was reading through this was verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And then he goes on to pick David. So God's not looking for people's appearance. He looks at their heart. And we also know um, that God saw David as a man after his own heart. Because earlier in Samuel, in uh, Samuel 13, I can just read it out. You can follow this up later if you want. Um, Samuel's talking to Saul and he says, you have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not come at, uh, kept the command of the Lord. Your God gave you. If you had, you would have, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time, but now your kingdom will not endure for the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. So this is God talking about David. David is a man after God's heart. So like us, David was a man who often failed, and I think Ben's probably going to get into that in the next week or whenever he's on next. Um, he was subject to temptation and to sin. Uh, like us, he knew despair and fear and doubt and loneliness, and he also had a personal relationship uh, with the Lord. And at the end of it all, we remember him as a man who was after God's own heart. So I thought what we could do today is just have a quick look through three different stories of David, just to see what it looks like to have a heart after God's own heart. What do you reckon? Sound pretty good? You don't really have a choice, so. <laughs> um, all right, so when we meet David, he's a young boy. Most scholars agree he was about 10, 15 years old. And though handsome, he was not an impressive figure. Um, and during the lonely years of shepherding, he's a shepherd, uh, David had developed a heart for God. He had learned to see God as his shepherd. And, um, like I was saying before, we get this awesome picture of like the historical context and stuff through 1st, 2nd Samuel, Kings, all that kind of stuff. But we also get this really rich, um, like emotional understanding of David through the Psalms. One of the Psalms that he read, Psalm 23, which we read earlier, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his namesake. So this is how David feels about God. Um, 
and he thinks that God, or he sees God as his shepherd. Now, David is a shepherd, and he knows how much he cares for his flock and stuff like that, so he can see how much God cares for his flock, um, which is pretty cool. So he's got this kind of understanding of God, even from a, even from a very young age. Um, David also sensed God's greatness in his creation. In Psalm 19, he writes, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Um, And again, in Psalm 29, uh, David calls on men to ascribe glory to God. In Psalm 29, he writes, Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in in the splendor of his holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. And I get this feeling whenever I... Like whenever I'm in a thunderstorm, we had some crazy thunderstorms a couple of weeks ago. I'm sure you guys, or at least if you're in Toowoomba, you remember this. And I remember just, this was like when the thunder and the lightning were happening at the same time. It was literally right above us and it was amazing. And I just, whenever that kind of stuff happens, I just go, oh, how much more powerful, like this is, this is powerful. How much more powerful is God? And David has been able to see this in his time as a shepherd and he writes about this in his Psalms. Um, so David's a shepherd. He has plenty of time to take in the beauty and splendor of God's creation. And from a young age, David is contemplating these things. He's aware of his creator and he is receptive to him. So how are your hearts towards God? Are you receptive towards God? Are you spending regular time with God? Now, this could just be my personal personal conviction, but my goodness, do my weeks and days fill up with a lot of stuff that is not of, God, not of God, whether it's TV or doing projects or running around, whatever it is. Um, there's something that appeals to me about David's like shepherding life, where he's obviously doing stuff, but he just gets to spend a lot of time with his creator, and it's really, really, really important. Uh, and sometimes I forget that I actually have a personal relationship with God, and it ends up, ends up being really one way. Similarly, we see these attributes in Jesus' desire for alone time with God throughout the New Testament. In Matthew, just after he had fed the 5,000, before he does his whole walking on water gig, it says, Immediately Jesus made the disciples get uh, into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up uh, on a mountainside by himself to pray. Was Jesus spending alone time with God? And again, uh, right at the very beginning of his ministry, uh, in, in Mark 1.35, it says, Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. And this is just after he's been healing people and driving out demons and, and teaching people in Galilee. So spending time with God is a very important part of our Christian life. So observation number one, David is receptive to God. He contemplates God. Even just by virtue of his job, he gets to regularly spend time with God. David is a man after God's heart. How's your time with God going, Willard, then? Story number two. Um, So as David is shepherding in the field, he comes across situations where he needs to fend off wild animals. He specifically mentions lions and bears, and his success in these areas, uh, we later see that he attributes to God. His faith and trust in God to deliver him from these combative trials serve him very well in this next story. And I want to have a look at David and Goliath. You knew this was coming. You can't do like at least an initial sermon on David without David and Goliath. 
So the Israelites and the Philistines were um, having a battle and they had camped out on two opposing hills with a valley in between them. And we're going to read from 1 Samuel 17, uh, chapter 4. Um, So a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp and his height was six cubits and a span. That's almost three meters or nine foot nine Weirdly, I don't actually know how tall I am. I'm six foot two. I don't know how long, how big that is in metric. That's kind of weird for an Australian, but that's all right. Um, so much taller than I am. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. That's almost 60 kilograms. So his, his armor plate is 60 kilograms. Um, on his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. That's seven kilograms. You think of seven one kilogram bags of flour, put that on the end of like a five foot long rod and try and hold this up like this and it's just going to be sagging down <laughs> like one of these ones. This guy is huge. Um, and his shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight me and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' word, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. And rightly so. This standoff lasts for 40 days, where each day Goliath would come out and issue this challenge to the Israelites. And at this point, we meet David again. And uh, David is running some supplies to his brothers from uh, Jesse in Bethlehem, uh, to his brothers on the front line. Uh, And he hears this challenge from Goliath. All the Israelites in the camp are talking about the rewards for whoever can kill this guy. Things like living tax-free for the rest of your life, which would be pretty amazing. Um, Getting to marry the the king's daughter, so he's going to be a son-in-law to the king. That's pretty impressive. But David says this in um, chapter 17, verse 26. David asked the man standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? So rather than thinking about all of these amazing rewards and stuff like that, David is more concerned with this guy who is like defying God. Uh, His brother gets the wrong idea about what David's saying. He thinks that David's just trying to show off or talk big. He's like, oh, you know, who is this guy? He's like, who is this giant? Who is this guy that would defy God? Uh, So his brothers think that he's, uh, you know, talking big and stuff like that. But David is convinced that God would be able to, oh, man, technology. Oh, I know, right? So David is convinced that God would be able to deliver anyone who defies God into the hands of even this small shepherd boy. David is brought before Saul, and this is what David says. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You are not able to go against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it. I struck it down and I rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair 
and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. So Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. So David has got some real trust in God to pull through this. Uh, to pull through this. Now, I want to put this in perspective from you. Do we have a teenager in the room? Any teenagers in the room? <laughs> Not quite. I hope we do have a teenager. No, that's all right. Hey, Becky, you want to come down here for a sec? You can do it, Becky. Thanks, Becky. Down the front. So, David's a teenager, right? Maybe late teens. How old are you, Becky? 14. 14. All right, so 10, 15. Fits pretty well in that age age bracket. So before I got in today, um, I was the first one here, and I put that bit of blue tape up there. That's three meters tall. This is how big Goliath is. From, from, from this little point over here, Becky, do you want to come and stand here? How would you feel about going up a guy that big? <laughs> not, not very good. And remember, this guy has a chest piece of armor that weighs more than you do. <laughs> a massive spear. Not feeling too great? That's right. Thanks, Becky. You can sit down. So this is pretty big. Um, now, that's just a teenager. Parky, you're a military man. You want to come up? <laughs> you want to stand here? <laughs> How would you feel about going up against a giant that big? <laughs> How would you feel about going up a guy this big? Deeply intimidated. Deeply intimidated. That's the answer I was looking for. So this dude is pretty big. Yeah, thanks, mate. You can sit down. He's pretty big. So if you want to, later on after the sermon, you can come and stand here and see how big Goliath was. Uh, it's pretty. Sorry. Nine foot. Uh, in here, I've got three meters, nine foot nine. So you can, you can take maybe a foot off that. Still pretty big. So, David must have a lot of trust in God to be going up against a guy this big. <coughs> but luckily, his experience of God's provision going up against bears and lions has given him a heart position where he is willing to trust God in this way. And I find this, um, I find this like, really handy when I'm going up against my Goliath moments in life. It's, I find it really handy to, in those moments, look back at times where God has come through. Um, and that usually gives me a fair bit of strength to get through what I'm going through, which is pretty cool. So uh, Saul tries to give David his armor, but it is way too big. Saul's this big dude. David's this tiny little guy. That's never going to work. Uh, and in verse 40, we'll keep reading and see what happens. So... David then took his staff in his hand and he chose five smooth stones from the stream and put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag. And with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. 
All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. So have you ever heard the, um, the saying like bringing a gun to a knife fight? So this is David bringing like a nuclear weapon to like a dagger poke, <laughs> which is pretty cool. So not only is David tiny in comparison to Goliath, but he is going to take on Goliath without a sword, so that it is very clear that it is God that is winning this battle for the Israelites. We'll read on verse 48. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him, reaching into his bag and taking out a stone. He slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David... Uh, triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone without a sword in his hand. He struck down the Philistine and killed him. So in David's Goliath moment, he trusts the Lord and wants to give God the glory because he knows that the only way he's going to get through this is by the power of God. And he even does it with a, with a sling without a sword to, to, to prove to everybody this is God getting me through this battle. Now we know that... Um, couldn't really get through a sermon of David without mentioning this, but we know that David is like a foreshadowing of Christ, right? A little shepherd, or a little dude from Bethlehem. Uh, poor guy, he's a shepherd. We know that Jesus is our good shepherd. He becomes a king. We know that Jesus is our king. Um, and we see uh, David's victory in battle with just a sling, and it's a one-punch knockout, no competition, and it's great. So how much greater then is it that in Jesus' Goliath moment, that he is able to defeat sin and death with no weapon at all. From David, we see this young boy defeat this giant with a sling, and it's not even a competition, and we hear, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. The very, this very day I'll give the carcasses of your army to the birds and the wild animals. And he goes on to win this victory for the Israelites in an awesome display of trust and reverence for God. In contrast that with what we see from Jesus, we see a man, fully God and fully man, who instead of rising to battle with a, hand, uh, with, uh, with a sword in hand, he would lay down his life for those who loved him and those who hated him. And what we, what we don't hear from Jesus is a mighty war cry about delivering the carcasses of his enemies to the birds. What we hear from Jesus is, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And he wins, his, he wins his battle for the whole earth, for everyone. He defeats sin and death. How much greater is Jesus? That's awesome. So, David trusts God to deliver the enemy into his hands and even wants to make it clear that it's only by God's power that he would be able to defeat Goliath. David is a man after God's heart. How's your trust in God going, Willoughby? How's your reliance on him going? Story number three. At this point, you might be thinking that Saul would be really happy to have David around, and he is for a time, um, but it's short-lived. Saul gets wind of what the Israelites are saying about David and Saul. In um, Samuel 18, it says that uh, all the Israelites are singing, Saul has slain his thousands, and David has slain his ten thousands. And David, oh, sorry, Saul is getting very, very jealous because usually in battles you're supposed to be singing about the king and his victory, yet all these Israelites are singing about David and his victory. So Saul's getting pretty jealous and he begins to hate David. 
And he actually makes multiple attempts on his life. One by trying to pin him to a wall with his spear. Thanks for killing Goliath for me, man. Uh, another by sending men to kill him at his house. And we saw a lot of uh, Saul's craziness in Ben Simon the other week. Long story short, this goes on for a while and David is on the run. But he gathers a band of roughly 400 men around him who are in distress or in debt or disgruntled. So kind of like the misfits, David and his band of misfits. Uh, and he becomes their commander. And he turns up in a place um, called Nob, where the priests who remember him as this amazing warrior fighting for Saul agree to help him uh, and his men by giving them provisions and giving them swords and, and sending him on his way. And they have no idea that Saul has this massive beef with, um, with David. But Saul is outraged that they would help David. And he puts the entire town to the sword. All the priests, all of the men and women, the children, the infants, the cattle, the donkeys and the sheep, all slaughtered. So with his band of men, um, uh, and under God's instruction, David starts running his own little campaigns, fighting the Philistines and, and saving different people. And Saul's hatred of David becomes so severe whenever Saul is out on a campaign and he learns where David is hiding, he drops everything that he's doing and charges after him with thousands of men to try and kill him. And again, we can... Um, what's awesome about David is we can look at the Psalms to see how he's feeling in some of these moments. So we get this kind of historical record of what's going on, but we can see how David is feeling. And Psalm 31 is a lament that, um, that seeks help from God, that where David is seeking help from God. And, and from verse 9, he writes, Be merciful to me, Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow, my soul and body with grief. My life is consumed by anguish and my years by groaning. My strength fails because of my afflictions and my bones grow weak. Because of all of my enemies, I'm the utter contempt of my neighbors, an object of dread to my closest friends. Those who see me on the street flee from me. I am forgotten as though I were dead. I have become like broken pottery, for I hear many whispering terror on every side. They conspire against me and plot to take my life. That's pretty crazy, hey? This brings us to the final story. We want to have a bit of a look at. And we're going to jump forward to 1 Samuel 24, start reading verse 1. I know I'm jumping around a lot. You can, um, I can give you all these verses later a little bit. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all of Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags, the wild goats. Sounds like a pretty... Pretty cool movie in there, going out to the crags of the wild goats. <laughs> he came to the sheep pens along the way, and a cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give you your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Now, this is actually not entirely true because God never actually said this, and what's inferred is that because God has anointed David as the new king. That's permission to kind of say, well, you're supposed to be the king and this other guy has to go for that to be like fulfilled. So this other guy's got to die at some point. So it's not entirely true that he was given permission. But be honest with me. What would you guys be doing in this situation? This guy is out to kill you and God has seemingly given you permission to cut this guy off. Um, and in fact, God's actually anointed you as king to replace this guy. 
Furthermore, you have 400 men behind you saying, do it, because we're in peril because of this as well. And Saul is right in front of you, defenseless, relieving himself. It's, uh, it's an opportunity to write for the picking. So we'll read on and see what David does. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterwards, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do any such thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My Lord, the king! When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on the Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. Oh, sorry, I will not lay my hand on my Lord, which is Saul, because he is the Lord God's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of the robe but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs that you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Now, a revengeful heart would have followed the advice of the men. But David rather wished to overcome evil with good, though it would have been a lot easier for him to end the conflict there and then. This is not David's heart. At much discomfort and future peril to himself and his friends, because he makes, Saul keeps going, he makes more attempts on David's life, and David is presented with more opportunities to kill Saul, and he doesn't. He decides to love his enemy. And he actually does this twice, as I said. He was obedient to what God wanted him to do, even at great cost to himself. And we know this is what God wants. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus tells us how we are to act towards our enemies. In Matthew 5, 43 and 44, it says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So David saves the life of this man who is trying to kill him. And we see uh, the way that he acts and we think, oh, what an awesome guy. How much greater then that Jesus would not only save our lives, but he would give up his life to save us, even while we're sinning against him. David was obedient to God and what he wanted him to do. Um, How much greater that Jesus was obedient to the Father in the face of his own death. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will be done, but yours. David wanted to do what was right in God's eyes. Jesus wanted to do what was right in God's eyes, God the Father's eyes. So David is obedient to God, even in really tough circumstances, and even before Jesus was on the earth to talk about the do not, like, uh, the love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Before Jesus was even on the earth to say that, we see that this is the heart position of David for his enemies. David is a man after God's heart. How is your obedience to what God wants you to do, Willow Ben? 
Now there is so much more depth to having a heart after God than I can cover in a 30-minute sermon. Uh, And though I've presented three different examples of David's heart for God, there is so much more to it. So what I wanted to end with um, was this. The Bible says a lot about the heart. And we know that David was a man after God's heart, and we want our hearts to be aligned with God. So with my fancy Bible software, I looked up the word heart to see what the Bible says about the heart. And there's a couple of, and it really surprised me, actually. The Bible talks about the heart in a lot of different ways. Um, I have a massive list of things that I'm going to read out, and I have got verses for every single one of them that I'm not going to go through because it would take forever. But I can give you the list if you want to fact check me. The Bible talks about the heart as like a physical heart, right? Being stabbed through the heart. That's fairly self-explanatory. It also talks about the psychological heart. The heart can perceive in John 12, 40, he says, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts. The heart can understand. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. The heart can debate. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? The heart can reflect. But Mary treasured up all of these things and pondered them in her heart. The heart can remember. Then he went down to Nazareth and with them, uh, with them and was obedient to them, but his mother treasured all these things in her heart. The heart can think. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Emotionally, and I've got scriptures for all of these, but I'm not going to go through all the scriptures because it will take ages. Emotionally, the heart can experience merriment, gladness, joy, sorrow, anguish, These are all from the Bible. Bitterness, anxiety, despair, love, trust, affection, lust, callousness, hatred, fear, jealousy, desire, discouragement, sympathy, anger. Volitionally, that is like the heart can will things. The heart um, can purpose. You can purpose something in your heart. The heart can be inclined to do something. The heart can prompt. The heart can be steadfast. The heart can be willing. The heart can be willful. It can contrive of evil or it can follow its treasures. Morally, in the Bible, the heart can be gentle or lowly. It can be holy. It can be faithful. It can be upright. It can be pure and single-minded. It can be clean. It can be loving towards God or it can be hard. To have a heart after God is to try and get all of these attributes in alignment with what God wants and with God's heart. It's no wonder in Proverbs 4 that it says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. David was a man after God's heart. Are you a man or woman after God's heart? Now, we're never going to be able to do this perfectly. And the good news for us is that when we fail, we have someone that is our advocate and says, I've paid for it. And so as we are on our Christian journeys, trying to make our hearts more and more like God, we are going to fail. And unless God had had a plan to save us, we would be pretty buggered. But he did have a plan that Jesus would come and die for our sins. He would come and pay for them so that when we had to give an account for our life and what we have done and we come up short, Jesus goes, I have paid for it. Which is the greatest gift. I say this every single time. Every single time I do a sermon, I always end with, this is the greatest gift we can have, and it is. 
And I can say that every time because it's never going to change. This is always going to be the greatest gift that we have, we have ever had. So as we come to this time of communion, um, maybe you can reflect on how your heart is towards God. And maybe you might be convicted of some things that you need to work on. And the good news for you is that you can pray about it. And that God wants you to have a heart after his heart. If you, if you earnestly want to have a heart after God's heart and you're praying for it, God isn't going to say no. You're on your own. So I'm going to pray and we'll have some communion and we'll hold the cup and we'll drink it together at the end. Father God, I thank you for this man, David, that we can study and we can see his heart for you. He wasn't perfect. We later read that he was an adulterer and a murderer as well, but even in the New Testament, he is still referred to as a man after God's heart. In spite of his sin, he had a heart position that was one that wanted to follow you. Would you show us what it looks like to have a heart after your own heart, Lord? And as you show us areas that we need to work on, would you not discourage us, but would you encourage us? I thank you that when we do fail, Lord, that you have paid for it and we do not have to be weighed down by that sin, that we are free from it because of the work that you, had done on the, that you have done on the cross. And with this meal this morning, we remember that, Lord. We remember what it costs. We remember the body that was broken and the blood that was shed. And we thank you for it, Lord. In your great name I pray. Amen.